John chapter 2. We're going to be studying through John chapter 2 today and then again on Wednesday. Uh, I'll be teaching. So we're going to do half this morning and half on Wednesday night, uh, Lord willing. So uh, John chapter 2, probably a passage that's familiar to most of you. Um, the wedding in Cana. Jesus' first recorded miracle where he changes water into wine. It's at a wedding. A wedding's where unexpected things can happen, can't they? Sometimes things don't go as smoothly as one hopes. Uh, I know for our oldest daughter's wedding, they decided to get married in January, which is always a beautiful time of the year to get married, but that's what they wanted. And we had at that time, I think it was 2006, 20 inches of snow on the ground here in Greeley, bitterly cold. And her husband, Mark, all of his relatives were here from Florida. <laughs> oh, we loved it. It was so funny. <laughs> they were freezing, to say the least. And then uh, Mark and Stephanie Quinones. Some of you know Mark and Stephanie at their wedding. Uh, before the wedding even started, uh, the candle holders that they had were thinner glass or something, and the heat off the candle, they just started exploding. Uh, six or seven of them just going off. It was great, very exciting. So you never know what's gonna happen. You know, brides fainting, grooms throwing up for obvious reasons, and the list goes on and on with those. But just as a caution, I've done more weddings in the past two years than I've done ever, uh, and I love doing weddings. Uh, but you get to a point where you, you talk cautionary things or discuss cautionary things with the bride and groom. Just as a caution, someone should always, always <laughs> read the lyrics of any song they're going to ask the DJ to play. Even if the title seems to be clearly about love, make sure that it's about lasting love, especially when it's the bride and groom dance. Like the wedding when the couple stepped out for the bride and groom dance and they were dancing to the song, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Sounds like a good song, doesn't it? It's a, it's a, it is a great song. Seems like it would be appropriate, but not quite. Mainly because of the verse that says, so goodbye, please don't cry. We both know I'm not what you need. <laughs> What a downer for the bridegroom dance, huh? <laughs> Say what? So let's go to our text, uh, John chapter 2, verse 1. But uh, to introduce the text to us, we're going to look at John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's read from John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, 
whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we find ourselves in this chapter uh, this morning. Uh, for what it is that you desire to teach us, what you desire to show us. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open, uh, Lord, that we would be looking forward with anticipation to what it is that you have for us and the truths you want to reveal to us on this day. So, Father, bless our time of study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In one of the key verses in all of John's gospel, we see that John here beheld the glory of Jesus. And throughout the gospel account, he continues to reveal the glory of Jesus. He continues to reveal that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Son of Man. We see that revealed in several verses. John 1.34, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God, said by John the Baptist. Further confirmed by Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 49, you are the Son of God. And we see also in John 1.51, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, said by Jesus himself. Son of God and Son of Man. Jesus was both. 100% God and 100% man. Not 50-50. He was completely God, completely man. And that, in and of itself, is hard for us to grasp, isn't it? It's a hard thing to understand, but nevertheless, it's the truth. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And obviously, Jesus revealed himself in both these ways. The word became flesh and dwelt among us as the Son of Man. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, Son of God. So John, in this gospel, reveals Jesus in both ways. Everyday situations that everyday man deals with every day. Everyday stuff. Son of man. And then also miraculous works, parables, teachings, showing humility, compassion, mercy, and grace, rebuke, and correction. In the midst of all of the everyday ordinary stuff, making it extraordinary as the Son of God. 
So in this text, as well as throughout John's gospel, Jesus reveals himself in both of these ways, son of man and son of God. Jesus reveals his glory, and John writes about it. John writes in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So back to our text, John chapter 2, we see Jesus and his disciples arriving in Cana and going to an event. And even though it's a special day, it's still something that happens in the everyday lives of people, a wedding. Jesus, we see, is invited to this wedding. In all the weddings that I've done over the past couple of years, I always make it a point to point out to the bride and groom the most important person, the most honored guest at your wedding should be Jesus Christ. He should be at the top of the list, the top of the guest list of any wedding. The name Jesus should be there. Well, verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So what's the third day referring to? Well, it's believed by most that this means that after this initial meeting between Jesus and Nathanael in chapter 1, that they went to Cana, and now it was either the third day traveling to get there or the third day after arriving there. We don't know for sure. But John gives us that detail on the third day. Makes you sort of wonder when you read something like that, what happened during those three days, doesn't it? I don't know, but I'm sure it was glorious. It was Jesus traveling with his disciples, so I'm sure it was, it was something else to be a part of. But on the third day, Cana of Galilee is about five or six miles from Nazareth. You start from Nazareth, you know, come over the top of the hill, uh, and you sort of start down this valley uh, towards the Sea of Galilee. And Cana was just a little village that was lying there on the way. Now, in Jesus' day, Jesus, uh, Jewish wedding celebrations lasted for a week. And during this time, relatives and friends would stay in the home of the bride and groom. Now, I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that we didn't keep that tradition. Do you have friends or relatives that you don't get along with? Well, if they're friends, I guess you get along with them, don't you? Or they're not friends. But relatives, you know, they're relatives. So, but can you imagine them moving in for a week? I cannot. You know, and you don't get to choose who gets to stay and who gets to go. But <laughs> so it was sort of a, this week then, if you picture it, it's sort of a honeymoon slash family reunion slash bachelor party slash wedding shower all rolled into one great big event. You know, I was just thinking, maybe we should institute this since uh, Virtus and Amy host weddings. We should all go stay at their house when there's a wedding. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> See, that never worked in the first couple services because they weren't here. I didn't have Virtus's face to remind me. To... So Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And as we will see, she's serving in some capacity. Verse 2 says, Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I have to ask when I see something like, why were they invited to the wedding? Well, maybe they were friends of the bridegroom or family of the bridegroom. 
uh, as a courtesy, since they were in town anyway. Small community, maybe everyone in town was invited, who knows? All of those things are possible, but Mary was there serving, so it was probably a relative of Jesus. Regardless of, we know that who was there by our text, for sure, we know that Jesus was there. We know his disciples were there, at least the ones up to this point. We know that Mary was there, and we're going to see the servants. They were all key players in this uh, event that we're looking at. But in verse 3, it says, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, said to Jesus, They have no wine. Well, in that culture, but with all of their traditions and everything that they did do and still do to some degree, to run out of food or drink at a wedding celebration would have been very embarrassing. If Mary was serving in the capacity that we see in the next few verses, this wedding must have been a relative or close fam friend of the family because uh, this seems to be very important to Mary, doesn't it? Mary knew that this would be a disgrace for the family to not have enough food or drink, and it could be a reflection on her as well if she was involved with the planning. But for us to notice that Mary didn't tell Jesus what to do, did she? She just reported the problem. They have no wine. Have you ever been in a place where you've tried to tell Jesus what to do? Raise your hand. Go ahead. Everyone, because we've all done that. We've all been in that place where we've tried to counsel Jesus on what it is we think he should do, right? Well, I don't know you're, if you're aware of this, Lord, but I thought about this for some time, and I think the solution to the problem here is that you should do this, Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, does it? Number one, he already knows what the problem is. Number two, he already knows what the solution is. And we're either in the way or along for the ride, right? We need to be one or the other, obedient to what he's telling us to do or not. Counseling Jesus, it just doesn't work out well. But Mary seeks help from the one that she truly believes can help. Jesus had the resources to alleviate the problem. She knew that. I mean, he's the son of God, right? If anyone could help, he could. Which shouldn't surprise us at all. If you're the one that initially created grapes, <laughs> making wine would not be a really big deal, would it? So... She took it to the one that actually do something about it. But imagine this situation. The, the guests come, and by Jewish tradition, certain things are expected. They would expect plenty of food, plenty of drink, plenty of celebration. And to fall short in any of these expectations would leave the guests feeling cheated, disappointed. It'd be a major faux pas. It would not be appropriate for the family. Now, with all the Jewish traditions and laws that were in place at that time, in some cases, you would even be breaking the law and could even be fined for not having enough drink or enough food. So this was a serious situation. So Jesus answers Mary. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, at first glance, looking at that statement, it seems like a harsh response, doesn't it? Jesus speaking to his mother and saying that, it seems, it seems kind of harsh. 
But understand the Greek word for woman used here is a title of respect, similar to our using my lady or ma'am, or even in some cases mother. It's the same word that's used at the cross in John 19 when Jesus says to Mary, woman, behold your son. And he said to John, behold your mother. So as a word of caution, men, it's my recommendation that you never, ever, ever refer to your wife or your mother in this way. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? You know, it's just not going to work out well for you at all. I would not recommend doing that. It wouldn't be received as the same, in the same context as this verse in the way that we see it, would it? I don't know, guys, go home and try it. <laughs> Let me know how that works out. But in this case, it's not a rebuke. It's a statement of truth. Jesus means no disrespect to Mary at all, but he is abrupt with her. He's merely communicating that he is now being directed only by his heavenly Father, and that the time for him to be revealed as Savior and Lord, his hour, has not yet come. That's a phrase that you see repeated throughout the Gospels. In John 7, 6, my time has not yet come. In John 7, 8, my time has not yet fully come. 7.30, his hour had not yet come. 8.20, for his hour had not yet come. But then finally we see in John chapter 17, which is known as the real Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. In verse 5, Mary, his mother, said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So this indicates to us that Mary had some prominent role in this wedding celebration as she is here telling the servants what to do. She has some level of responsibility. We don't know what that is, but obviously she's very involved. These are also the last recorded words of Mary, words that should echo in our hearts and in our ears today as she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, we're all gathered here this morning for Bible study, for worship, fellowship, and we're servants of the Lord, aren't we? And what is being said to us in this verse this morning? Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Obedience, right? We need to be in a place of obedience. Write this down if you're a note taker. Be obedient to the last thing Jesus told you to do. A good rule to live by. Being obedient to the last thing that Jesus told you to do. Is Jesus going to give you something else to do if you haven't been even been obedient to the last thing he told you to do? Probably not. So just be obedient to the last thing that Jesus told you to do, whatever that is. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So these six stone water pots set aside, as it says in this verse, for the manner of purification of the Jews. What is that? What's that all about? What is this purification thing? Hold your place in John 2 and flip over back to the left, Mark chapter 7. 
Mark chapter 7. We're going to see in this, get some explanation or some insight into what this manner of purification of the Jews is. Mark chapter 7, we'll start reading at verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, came to Jesus. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? So I don't know if you guys think like me. <laughs> Scary thought for you guys, isn't it? If you think like me, and you're looking at this, and you're looking for the meaning of this manner of purification of the Jews, and you're doing just fine until you get to the end of the verse 4, and it talks about washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Does that throw anybody besides me? It didn't me right away. Couches, what, what, <laughs> what are you talking about, you know? Are they going in and washing down their lazy boy before they, <laughs> you know... I had to throw that in just as kind of a little advertisement on the side. Uh, just ask for Chris's business card if you're wondering about that. But anyhow, short commercial. Uh, couches in the Greek, by definition, were something that you would recline at. So you've seen the painting of the Last Supper. That's not the way it was. I hope you understand. It wasn't a portrait. Uh, that's not the way it was at all. They were actually laying throughout the room, a small room. Uh, there would be little short tables. There might be benches. But anything that you would recline at to enjoy a meal, this is what they're talking about. Washing those, just like here in the coffee shop. Not because of the manner of the purification of the Jews, but we wash the tables off in the coffee shop just so they're clean. So you're not grossed out by something. So we make sure we do that. So that's what this is talking about. Hygiene, keeping the place where you are eating uh, in a clean manner. So we have these ordinary stone water pots put in place for the washing of hands and utensils. Six stone water pots put in place because of the number of guests at the wedding. Six stone water pots used to fulfill the law for temporary purification. Six stone water pots to be used by the Lord to meet a need, to satisfy a requirement, and to perform a miracle. In verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Not an unusual request, normally, but what was it that they needed? More wine, not more wash water, right? Now, altogether, this could amount to anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons. I know, I'm a math genius. It's six water pots, 20 to 30 gallons each. That's how I came to that. 
Doesn't take a scholar to figure that one out, does it? I had to use a calculator, but okay, fine. But So the servants were just being obedient. They just carried out what he commanded them to do. That's what servants are supposed to do, aren't they? Amen? Servants carrying out what the Lord commands them to do. Verse 8, he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, I think this is going to take a little bit of faith on the part of the servants, isn't it? Because if it was still water when they took it to the master of the feast, he's not going to be pleased. And that's kind of a big question, isn't it? Was it still water when they took it to the master of the feast? In the time that they drew more water from the well, took it to the water pots and poured it in, had the servants ladle it out to take to the master of the feast up until the time that he put it up to his lips, during that time frame, when did it turn to wine? We don't know, do we? It's one of the things we're just going to have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. So it takes faith on the part of these servants either way. We know that it did happen as we read on through the text. We know that it happened miraculously. We just don't know the time frame exactly. And, but we do know that wine takes time, doesn't it? Remember Orson Welles, Palmasan, we will sell no wine before it's time. Do you remember that? 55 and older ladies, do you remember that? <laughs> I am going to get emails from that one. I just know. So you have this situation where water became wine and it wasn't through the normal progress of, of making wine, was it? It was a miracle. I think that it happened instantly. When that instant happened, we don't know, but it did happen instantly. So verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So now we see who's responsible for the lack of wine at the wedding. It's the bridegroom. Can you imagine if the master of the feast, though, had had this conversation with the servants? Because... The master of the feast was there. He'd been drinking what had been put before him as well. But now all of a sudden, as he said, you know, you saved the best to last, puts this up to his mouth and tastes it. Oh, this is good. This is awesome. I thought we were all out. And he says to the servants, what year is this? <laughs> this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what vintage is this? Right now. Yeah. Was it aged in barrels uh, for years? How was it made? You know, it was made like a minute ago in the washing pots. You know, <laughs> not a conversation they probably even wanted to have with him, right? Let's just get it to him and let's leave. But in this verse, we do see who's in charge of the wine. We see that the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So you have to wonder, did he not buy enough? Did more people show up than expected? But without this divine intervention, he and his new bride may have gained a not-so-popular uh, reputation in this little community, right? Oh, they're the ones that, you know, buying T-shirts for them that said, no whiners. 
no whining. How do you live that down? How am I going to live that one down? You know that? <laughs> Verse 10. He says to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Now think about this. This was excellent wine. Jesus doesn't make junk, does he? It was excellent. The best wine ever. Well, what constitutes then inferior wine? Watering it down to make it last longer, just to make it stretch out longer. The more people drink, the less they even recognize that, right? So whatever, that was what you would maybe expect to stretch this short supply of wine that they had out. But no, they've got the best wine now. So how much water was in the pots? Verse 7 says that they were filled to the brim. That's as full as you can get it, isn't it? Right before it came in, one of the girls from the Sunday school class went out and got a glass of water. <laughs> and you're just watching. I mean, it looked like it was above the brim. It was so full. And I was thinking, this is not going to work out well because she's going to turn around and walk into the classroom. And sure enough, that's what happened. But it was all six of these pots filled to the brim. So this wasn't a miracle mix, was it? Because you know that if you fill them to the brim and you add something else to that, it's going to overflow, isn't it? So all of that which was water was now wine. It was a complete transformation miracle. Jot this down. Ordinary, everyday pots transformed from the inside out by a supernatural work of the Lord. Ordinary, everyday pots transformed from the inside out by a supernatural work of the Lord. Now that should sound familiar to you. Who did Jesus choose to be his disciples? Ordinary, everyday pots. Ordinary, everyday men. And who witnessed this miracle? Well, Mary, we know the servants, of course, and the disciples. Everyone else was oblivious as to where it came from or how it got there. Didn't even care, probably. But those three groups, Mary, the servants, and the disciples, knew. So how many disciples were present? Well, we know that if you start in John 1.37, that initially two disciples followed Jesus. Andrew was one. The other one isn't mentioned. Now, most scholars agree that it was John, the writer of this gospel. And I agree as well. Not that I'm a scholar, but I agree with them, <laughs> the scholars. So what was the first thing that we see from that text in chapter 1 that Andrew did? He went and told his brother Peter in verses 40 and 41. So if John was the other disciple, what would be the first thing that he would probably do? Probably go and tell his brother James. If John is the writer of this gospel, didn't mention himself by name as the other disciple, which he never does through the whole book of John. He never says, I'm John. He refers to himself as what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. 
Well, since he didn't refer to himself by name, it wouldn't be that unusual for him not to refer James either, call him by name. But also, since Mary was John's aunt, and I've already had a couple questions about this in the first two services, we'll deal with it another time, but if you do your study, you'll find out the relation there. Mary was John's aunt, and Jesus and John were cousins. Then James, of course, is related as well, being the brother of John. So it wouldn't be a stretch at all for him to be at the wedding. You might be thinking, uh, Pastor Jim, this seems to be based on a lot of speculation on your part. Seems like a stretch. Maybe. Stay with me. I think we could uh, further confirm this and a couple other things. As you may have noticed in your own study of the Gospels, Peter, James, and John were the three disciples that had front row seats to things that the other disciples didn't. Jesus exposed them to other things, such as Mark 5, when Jesus was at the house of Jairus and raised his daughter from the dead, who was in the room with him? Peter, James, and John. In Mark 9, at the transfiguration on the high mountain, who was there? Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 26, who did Jesus take with him in the garden to pray? Peter, James, and John. From Sunday school, some of you uh, elderly folks, who was the three guys in the rowboat with Jesus? You remember that song, don't you? Peter, James, and John in a rowboat, Peter. No? Make a note here, take that out for the next time I do this lesson. <laughs> You've never heard that song? It's a classic. Yeah. Out on the deep blue sea. No? Okay. Also, who were the first four guys Jesus called in Matthew 4.18? Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. So Peter, James, and John, you might be thinking, what's my point? <laughs> well, in verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So in summary, what's happened so far? Jesus performed a miracle. In this verse, it says he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. When Jesus performed miracles, it was obviously always for a reason. And I think normally twofold. Number one, to accomplish a physical purpose. And number two, to teach a spiritual lesson. To accomplish a physical purpose and to teach a spiritual lesson. He performed miracles to impact people's lives and to teach those who were around him, ministering with him, a lesson, to teach them something, always. It was never to show off what he could do. It was always for a purpose. He performed miracles of provision in our text today, turn water into wine, feeding of the 5,000. He performed miracles of healing, Peter's mother-in-law, the nobleman's son, the leper. He performed miracles over creation. He calmed the seas. He caused the fig tree to wither. He raised people from the dead, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, all miracles. However, we also know that miracles and signs would become a source of controversy as well in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 12, uh, verses 38 through 41, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders when some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. 
He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In Luke 23, at the trial before his crucifixion, standing in front of Herod, it says in verse 8 that Herod hoped to see some miracle done by him. Jesus was constantly being pressured by others to perform miracles. However, Jesus did not perform miracles to impress people or by peer pressure. He only did what the Father told him to do, to manifest his glory. So here we are at this wedding. A miracle is about to happen, his first recorded miracle. And a miracle for what reason? Well, that verse tells us, to manifest his glory. To accomplish a physical purpose and teach a spiritual lesson involving what? Six ordinary stone pots. He was going to meet a need. They needed wine. That was the physical purpose. But what was the lesson to those around him? What would his disciples especially learn from this? Well, how many disciples were there? Going back to the groundwork we've laid, who was there? We know Andrew and Peter, John and his brother James, Philip and Nathaniel. How many disciples? Six. How many stone pots? Six. It's interesting. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus told his 12 disciples to gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. How many baskets were filled? Twelve. How many disciples? Twelve. You still think the six pots and six disciples connections a stretch? I don't. I believe that's the way Jesus worked. The miracle of water into wine was orchestrated by the Lord to manifest his glory by meeting a physical need, teaching a spiritual lesson. Six ordinary pots filled to the brim with water transform and poured out supernaturally into others' lives, meeting the need of what they thirsted for, in this case, wine. Also, six ordinary disciples that would be filled with the Holy Spirit, transformed and poured out supernaturally into others' lives, meeting the need for what they thirst for, Jesus. In Acts 4, we see Peter and John, they were arrested and they were being questioned by the high priestly council. And after answering their questions, verse 13 tells us of the council's response. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated, untrained men ordinary pots and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, that to be said of all of us, amen? People recognizing we've been with Jesus. Ordinary men and women filled with the Holy Spirit doing extraordinary things because of the time we spend with Jesus. Yeah, the people at the wedding wanted wine the disciples saw Jesus meet that physical need. Using what? Six ordinary stone pots. 
And what did he do with those six pots? He filled them up and he poured them out. Let me ask you this morning, do you feel like an ordinary pot? Cracked as you may be? Do you know what Jesus wants to do with your life? He wants to fill you up and pour you out in spite of your cracks. He wants to take ordinary, everyday cracked pots like us and transform us into useful vessels filled with his Holy Spirit, transformed and poured out into the lives of others for what purpose? To manifest his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the principles that you have for us, the truths, the things that we can apply in our lives. Lord, things that maybe we haven't thought of before, things that in just casual reading of the Bible, maybe sometimes we miss, but that have such significance in our walk with you. Father, we pray this morning that you continue, as we stay faithful in studying your word, that you continue to reveal yourself and your truths to us. We want to know and apply all these things in our lives that we might be more useful vessels for your glory, that we might manifest your glory. Oh, Father, we pray that you just use us ordinary pots to accomplish your purposes. If you're here this morning, though, and you've not yet given your life over to the Lord, you've not accepted in your life his provision for your sin, you can be forgiven of all past, present, and future sins in your life. Doesn't mean that you'll be made perfect, but that you'll be being perfected, sanctified by the Lord. As you come to know him more and come to know more about him, just growing in him and drawing closer to him, you have that opportunity this morning to respond to the love message that is the gospel. Jesus wants to pour his love out upon you this morning. He wants you to know that the things you've done in the past can be forgiven by the sacrifice that he's made for you. You need just but to surrender your life to him, trusting in him and believing in him and all that he is and all that he's done for you. At the end of the service, we'll have a couple people up here that can pray with you, pray for you, let them know of the decision you've made this morning so that they can lift you up in prayer and they can agree with you where you are and the decisions that you've made for the Lord. For the rest of us, as we leave this place, we have the opportunity to go about our day and our week with a desire to be used by the Lord. Just being obedient to the last thing that he told us to do to be those ordinary pots transformed for his glory. Lord, do that work in us. Bless our week. Bless us as we go our way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.